The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. I pointed out to him where I spent many, many an afternoon sitting out on that slab. It was just a concrete slab with a cover over it. And talking to the girls, listening to the transistor radios, um, like teenagers did back then, talking about boys, talking about what all 17-year-old girls talk about. Seventeen Magazine, uh, the Beatles, Mamas and the Papas, that kind of thing. The only odd thing was all these teenagers were in various stages of pregnancy, but we were just girls. That's Laura Engel, recalling her time at a home for unwed mothers. Today, Laura is a 68-year-old mother and grandmother who lives a full and contented life in San Diego. She grew up in Biloxi, Mississippi, and describes herself as an average child and teenager, a teenager who had a secret. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us. The secrets we keep from others. And the secrets we keep from ourselves. I had a family that was uh, a very close, nice family. You know, we went to church, and we did all the things that normal families do. I I was the only daughter. I was the oldest. I had three younger brothers. Uh, My mother had a lot of issues. She was actually a secret in her family. 
My mother was, when I think, I'm not a doctor, but I think she was bipolar. I, I just knew instinctively that you just don't talk about mama's moods and the weeks that she would lay in bed crying. And I loved my mother, but I don't think we were close at all. I always felt like I wasn't enough with my mother and actually became like the in-between between my mother and my grandmother who lived next door, my father's mother. When Laura was 15, she fell for a guy who wasn't exactly the boy next door. He wasn't from Biloxi. He had long hair, which was fairly new in the mid-1960s, and he didn't have a southern accent. He just was a different kind of guy. He played a guitar, and he and I became boyfriend and girlfriend in a very young age. I guess I was like 15. So by the time I was, uh, the summer that I was turning 17, he and I broke up because he was going on to college, he said, but he ended up joining the Army pretty soon after that, in fact. I can imagine what it must have been like during that long, hot Mississippi summer ticking by, especially for a girl who had just turned 17. A girl with a troubled mother. A girl who had a certain longing to get out, though she might not even have known what that would mean. Though Laura and her boyfriend had broken up, he kept coming by the house. Laura was under a spell, cast by her own longing made manifest by the long-haired, guitar-playing guy from out of town. But that spell was broken by the slow, very slow, dawning realization that Laura was pregnant. Actually, my memory of that is that I was in denial. I couldn't believe that I could be pregnant. It was devastating because I didn't know which way to turn. There was nothing much worse in that period of time, than to get pregnant, um, except if a boyfriend didn't want to marry you. <laughs> and that was like the ultimate. It was awful. Back then, it's important to understand that there was no such thing as sex education, which my teenaged son has informed me is now called human development. In the mid-1960s in Biloxi, Mississippi, it was called family hygiene. Let's take a second to think about that term family hygiene. It's like a big antiseptic wipe, erasing the messy truth of teenage bodies and desires. Now consider that oral contraceptives, aka the pill, were approved by the FDA in 1960, but it took a Supreme Court case in 1965 to give married couples the right to use it. For the unmarried, the pill was like a myth whispered among girls, and mostly You didn't whisper about such things, because that would mean you were a bad girl. I kept it a secret until my mother cornered me when I was like three and a half months pregnant and demanded to know if I was pregnant. And I said, I'm not sure. I don't think so, because I'm not sick. And aren't you supposed to be sick when you're pregnant? Aren't you supposed to throw up when you're pregnant? And that's how naive I was. My mother um, took me to the doctor. Sure enough, I was pregnant. She was horrified, went to bed for a couple of days, just wouldn't even speak to me. My father wouldn't speak to me. My father was a very quiet man, but I was his only daughter, and he and I just adored each other. I was the apple of his eye, and all of a sudden he turned away from me, wouldn't speak to me. In the meantime, he called my um, old boyfriend's 
parents and found out that uh, he had just gone into boot camp. Uh, he was in Fort Benning, Georgia. And my father took me in the car and my mother and drove straight there 400 miles and thought that he could have us married there. Because if I could get married, that was like going to solve all of everyone's problems. God forbid they think I was pregnant and not, you know, married. I thought we would go to a church there and, and get married, or we'd go to a justice and the peace. And I had this fantasy that it was all going to work out. Let's just back up for a second. I just want a little bit more. Those 400 miles back and forth between Biloxi and Fort Benning. What was the atmosphere like in the car between you and your parents? It's interesting you bring that up. That was torture. Neither one of my parents said hardly anything, even to each other. My mother sat in the front seat crying. My father just drove on. I don't even remember him turning back and looking at me or saying anything. I'm sure we stopped to go to the bathroom. Um, It was horrible. I have to tell you, though, I do remember in the back seat thinking it would all work out. That once my boyfriend saw me, and I honestly thought my father would just go take him, uh, pick him up at the base, that everyone would say, sure. In the trunk of that silent car speeding through those 400 miles between Biloxi and Fort Benning was a white dress and white shoes Laura thought she'd be married in. The way I remember it, it was kind of an empire-style dress. And my granny was a seamstress, so I oh, she made beautiful clothes for me. And I don't even know where that dress came from, but it was nothing. It was not new. It was a dress in my closet, and I remember it was cream-colored. And I remember taking white, like, pumps, because they weren't real high heels, but they were pumps, you know. And I just remember packing all that in a little bag. When we got to the hotel room, I took a bath. I remember being in the bathtub and thinking, this is all going to work out. I remember getting dressed, and my mother stayed in the room with me, but she and I didn't, we didn't speak that much. But, big surprise... Things didn't work out that way. Her dad returned to the hotel without the boyfriend in tow. The boyfriend's parents had told him he didn't have to marry Laura. His drill sergeant told him he didn't have to marry Laura. And so Laura's father, still not speaking to her, said only one thing as they packed up and headed back to Biloxi. He doesn't deserve you, he said. A small, high beam of love cutting for just a moment through all that family shame. But not too long after that, a plan was hatched. My father and my uh, grandmother talked to the minister, and he told them about the home over there. It was a maternity home for unwed mothers, and it had been in New Orleans since, like, the late 1800s, and it was run by the church. And they assured me that um, I would be taken care of. And my mother said to me, she took me aside and said, if you go over there and have the baby, what we'll do is we will um, have you have the baby over there. And when you come back, I'm going to say the baby is mine. And you can pretend like you're the baby's sister. And I 
I'm in love with it because I thought, even though I still couldn't even comprehend a baby, I still thought, you know, at least this way I have my baby. And so I'm in love with it. And I said, okay. So as a 17-year-old, I thought, well, this is going to solve the problem. I'll go over there. I'll be out of sight. Nobody in my hometown will see me walking around pregnant. Um, I'll have the baby, and then we'll come back. My father and mother both drove me over to New Orleans in March. And um, I remember thinking they were both going to go in with me, of course. I was scared to death. I'd never lived anywhere but at home. Imagine being a 17-year-old girl who has never lived anywhere other than your own home with your parents and brothers and pulling up to a nondescript red brick building in a big city full of strangers. Imagine stepping out of that car, knowing that for five months, you will live apart from everyone you know and love while you prepare for one of the biggest moments of your life, childbirth. Laura's mother, who just can't handle it, stays in the car as her father takes her inside. My father had to do it. And it was while we were in there that the lady who was admitting me, when she said it was a wonderful thing what I was doing, giving up my child to be loved by a family that could not have children, I stopped her and I said, there's a mistake. And I was not the kind of teenager that would do that. I, you know, I, I didn't make waves with adults. I was very respectful of adults, of course. And I said, you know, there's a mistake. I'm not leaving the baby here. I'm, no, no, I'm going to keep it. My mom is going to raise it. And she looked at my father and he looked at her. And that's when everything changed. She left the room and my memory is, and it's so traumatic at that point, that my memory is like, um, foggy and it's little bits and pieces for so many years I wouldn't even allow myself to go there he's talking to me and he's telling me you don't want your mama to raise this baby and I think he was trying to protect not just me but the baby I think he had just made, made up his mind that that was not going to work And he's the one that told me this is what he wanted. And I remember I was so glad that he was finally talking to me and giving me advice. I think I would have done anything for him because it killed me when he stopped talking to me. And I wanted to make him happy. And I remember thinking at the same time I said, okay. I remember thinking, I had this fantasy that somehow everything would work out, that he would change his mind, and that I would keep the baby. But I told him, okay. The Home for Unwed Mothers asked the girls to change their names while they were there. This stripping away of their very identities was meant to preserve their anonymity from each other, from any possibility that their secret might someday be revealed. Laura was told, you will forget this ever happened. It became like a mantra repeated to her over and over again within the walls of that red brick building. You will forget this ever happened. 
On one side of the building was where the girls lived. The dormitories were upstairs, and we had a kitchen and an area for, um, you know, reading, and there was a TV room and that type of thing. And there was a chapel, because that was very important. So Laura and the other girls would listen to their transistor radios, call each other by their fake names, and flip through the pages of Seventeen magazine. While on the other side of the wall, from where they slept each night, there was a clinic where they would eventually give birth, and a nursery where babies were kept until they were adopted. In the meantime, the girls were given jobs. Laura's was to tend to the children in that nursery. Their belief was that the girls would be preoccupied working, which is true, we were, and it would give us a sense of responsibility to have a job to go to every day. And it also helped the home to run smoother, of course. And from what I remember, we were all very eager to do our jobs. I remember doing my job was important to me, and I wanted to do a good job. I had never been around newborn babies, and I had little brothers, but I'd never taken care of newborn babies. It it was life-changing for me because the nurse, the age, the nurse's age, and the nurses that worked in there were black. My hometown, I'd never had a friend of any color except white. Biloxi, Mississippi, in 1967, was a tourist town of beaches, nightclubs, and casinos. All those places were still de facto off-limits to African Americans. It took federal intervention in 1968, after years of protests, to open the beaches of Biloxi to non-whites. It taught me so much. It taught me about being she was so non-judgmental and such a wonderful person. And it opened my eyes to the real world and And I think that changed me tremendously in that time. After five months in the home for unwed mothers slash nursery, Laura goes into labor, and her labor becomes quickly distressed. Instead of giving birth at the home, as expected, she's taken to a nearby hospital. My memory is being there, scared to death, in labor, on a gurney in the hallway, which seems like for a long time, I have no idea how long it really was, And then I was put in the labor room. The next thing I knew is my mother came walking in the room. She looked like she was going to die when she walked in. She was just petrified. And I remember crying. I was, you know, in pain. And I don't know if they'd given me anything. I don't think they had. And I was scared. And she stayed for a very short time. And she told me, just to calm down and that I would get through this. And then she left. And I I think she might have been asked to leave, but she did leave. And the next thing I know is they gave me a shot and my memory's gone. I'm pretty sure what they gave me was twilight, the twilight shot that was used a lot back then where you have no memory of anything that's happening after the fact. And my first memory is so distinct My first memory is waking up in a ward with six or eight other women. And it's morning, the sun's coming in the window, and I've had my baby. And I have no memory of having my baby. I don't know if it's a boy. I don't know if it's a girl. I know nothing. I do know that all the women in this room, and we're all facing each other. It's like they had our beds like in a circle. It's the only way I can describe it. 
and they're all talking about their babies and their husbands and their other children and I'm eavesdropping but I'm very shy and I'm scared to death and petrified that they are going to know that I'm an unwed mother. That is my biggest fear, the shame of being an unwed mother. So I don't talk to anybody. The nurses come in and I, I ask a nurse about my baby and she said, oh, I'll be bringing him into you when I bring the others. And that's my first inclination, like my first meal. I had the baby and it's a boy and I'm thrilled because I'm thinking I'm going to see my baby and hold it. And at the same time, I'm petrified because I don't want them to know that I'm one of those women, an unwed mother. And that, that memory is very strong, but I remember when they brought him in, it was just, uh, it was beautiful. And it was so painful because I knew that this baby is not going to be my baby. And he was. I mean, he was part of me. From the minute I held him, he was part of me. And that's, that's when it all began, as far as my, when I really realized the impact of what this is, is going to do. How much time did you spend with him before you didn't see him again? Actually, I, I held him and I said, I gave me a little bottle to give him. And I knew what right foot to do because I had been working in a nursery. And I fed him and I held him and I unwrapped him. And the whole time trying to be strong because I didn't want anyone to know what I'm really thinking. And the nurse came in and took him from me and just told me not to make a scene because I didn't want her taken from me. She took him from me, and my next memories, and I don't even know how I got there. My next memory is going back to the home, and I was put into the clinic site because once you had your baby, you didn't, you know, mingle with the other girls, and you know, you're kind of like you're getting ready to be, you know, sent out of there. During her time caring for infants in the nursery, Laura had instinctively learned a great deal about attachment. She's a naturally empathic, compassionate person. And even as a petrified 17-year-old, she thought of those babies, not just her son, to whom she gave the crib name of Jamie, but all of the babies. How long would it take for them to be adopted? How would they be held and cared for? How would they attach without a mother to attach to? How would the time in the nursery in the home for the unwed mothers impact them? She longed, to spend as much time with Jamie as she could. It was so obvious to me as they got older, their little faces would light up. I can see their faces now. There were a few that were very important to me, um, and they, they've stayed with me all these years. Their little faces, I can see their eyes, I can see their little eyes light up when you bent over to pick them up out of their crib. Um, it was something inside me. I think I've always been maternal. Being a mother has been the most important thing in my life. And my children have meant more to me than, and I always say they're my arms and legs. They are part of me. I have all sons. They are me and I am them. 
I knew that even then. The first time I held Jamie, I knew that he he was me and I was him. I actually got to hold my son again because the nurse who I had become so close to was a Sunday afternoon and she was alone in the nursery. She let me hold my son. He was three weeks old. So that is one of the most, was one of the most beautiful, beautiful memories I had. The fact that I got to hold my son again. And he was adopted at five weeks. So two weeks later, he was gone from the home. You were repeatedly told by everyone, you will forget this ever happened. Was there ever um, a moment where you forgot that this ever happened? No, I never forgot for a minute. I thought of him every day from that day forward. And I don't think a day went by that he didn't flicker through my mind or something. I'd look at one of my other sons, you know, and I'd always wonder, where is he? How is he? When I first got home, I was a mess. I was beside myself. I was furious. I felt like I had been betrayed. I felt like, okay, if I'm, they think I'm so bad, I'll be bad. I remember drinking alcohol in my bedroom. A girlfriend brought it to me. I mean, I was not the kind of person who would be in my bedroom drinking, you know, vodka. And I started smoking cigarettes. And I had started smoking at the home. And I thought, okay, they say I'm bad, I'll be bad. But at the same time, I think that was just, you know, my rebellion at what had happened to me. We're going to pause for a moment. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men... How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Started talking about this incident. 
drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Six months after she's back home, Laura's brother convinces her to go to a party. And it's there she meets a guy in the Air Force who's from California. In short order, she marries him and moves to California, away from the place that holds so many painful memories and secrets. Except we all know what happens when we run away from secrets. We take them with us wherever we go. Do you think... I mean, it's impossible really to answer this question, but do you think that had this not been your experience, had you not had a child that you uh, were forced to give up for adoption, and yet everything else remained the same, and you still were at that party that evening that your brother talked you into going, and you met this man, uh, do you think that you would have married him? No. I think I would have been in a totally different place in my life. I know that Having my son and having to give him up for adoption changed my whole direction of my life. I would probably have stayed in Mississippi, um, maybe not, but I would have gone on to college. I would have had a totally different life. Never in my wildest dreams would I have gotten married that quickly to somebody. I, I was able to admit to myself as I got older and wiser that I used him. I I can't say that I'm this perfect angel. I used him to leave a bad situation. My parents would not even talk to me about what had happened. 
my grandmother, who I adored and who loved me more than anything, would not talk to me about what happened. I was mourning that whole time for a baby that it was as if he had died. But you can't talk about it. It's a secret. Nobody is supposed to know that you did this. And God forbid if they do what they're going to think of you, and what are they going to think of the family? Laura and her husband have three boys together, but the marriage isn't a particularly happy one. After about a decade together, they split up. When we were finally divorced, I had met my second husband on a soccer field where our oldest boys were playing against each other. And we were just very good friends. We became very, very close friends, and it just evolved into love. And three years later, I married him. We've been married 38 years now. Did you um, tell your first husband about Jamie? Yes, I told him before we got married because I felt like he needed to know. I felt like he needed to know what I really, who I really was because in my mind, I was damaged. And I couldn't not tell him. I told him and he, um, he said to me, first of all, he was shocked. And then he said to me, don't ever, ever say anything about that again. Don't ever say anything to my parents about that. Promise me you won't. And he said, and another thing, are you going to love me as much as you love this Jamie? And I said, of course, because I was crying and hysterical. And I said, of course. And, and if we have children, I'll love them as much. But that was his you know, his take on it. Years and years later, before my husband, who I'm married to now, and I got married, I told him, I remember we had gone out and we were sitting in a booth in a restaurant, and I said, there's something I need to tell you that I've done. And it's, I hope you won't think less of me. And of course he was, how could I think less of you? He's known me for years, a couple of years now. And I said, I, I gave up a baby for adoption. And he was like, what? And after I told him the story, he put his arms around me and he said, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And do you want me to help you find him? Right then and there, I thought, wow. It's almost like a marriage test. (laughs) Yes. Laura and her second husband, Gene, who have now been married for 38 years, raised their gang of five kids together in San Diego. Then, with their kids grown, Laura begins to focus on genealogy. I wanted to write a family history for my children. And I was having so much fun doing this genealogy for probably about 10 years, and I knew the DNA was, uh, kids were available. During the 38 years that Jean and I had been married, we, we very seldom talked about Jamie either because I would change the subject and he would try to bring it up. And I pretty much come to terms with the fact that I might never see my son again. And when Jean was the one who said to me, honey, let's do this DNA kit thing. And I said, you know, it might be fun. But part of me knew that if my son did this, we'd get connected. All her life, Laura had dreamt of a time she might meet her first son. At times, she imagined letters. Other times, a blonde man in a red car pulling up to her house and embracing her. 
Why was the man blonde? Why was the car red? She didn't know. Our fantasies don't have to make sense. That night was uh, October 9th, 2016. I'll remember it forever. I went out to walk our dogs, and my cell phone pings. I looked down, I said Ancestry.com, and I thought, oh my gosh, another, you know, cousin from, you know, 1400 or whatever. You know, and I was just kind of like, I'm not even going to look at that. I wanted, to go, I wanted to go to bed and read. I was reading a really good book, and I just wanted to go and read until I fell asleep. But something inside of me said, just look at it. So I opened it up on my phone, and there it said, parent-child match. And there was an email in, you know, within my private email, and it said, I just received my DNA profile, and Ancestry.com says we are a parent-child match. I was adopted, and I'm looking for more information. Well, have you heard this saying, they fell to their knees? I know what that means now. My knees buckled. I had the, the most gigantic physical reaction to that email that I think I've ever had when reading something. My body started trembling. I couldn't talk. I, I was like, <laughs> I could not speak. I, I was like petrified. I was petrified. I was paralyzed. I just ran through my house. My husband bought something out the dogs. I was so stricken when I ran in the house. And so he went on out to get the dogs, and he, the whole time he's saying, what is it? What is it? And I couldn't talk. I ran to um, my office, my home office, looked at the computer, logged in to NFTC.com, reread that over and over. And my thought was, it sounds so business-like. <laughs> it was just very direct, you know. And at the same time, the other side of me was just, I just knew, I knew. And I didn't want to scare him. I was so emotional, I couldn't stop crying. My husband started crying when he came in the room and he said, do you think that's really him? And I said, who else could it be? And he's crying, I'm crying. And I decide that what I'm going to do is write a very calm email back. And so I said, could you please tell me uh, where you were born and when? And maybe, you know, I can give you some information. Well, right away, he, right away, he writes to me and says, uh, I can't even talk, July 8th, 1967, New Orleans, Louisiana. And that, I knew it, it was him. And here's what I wrote back to him. Here's the exact email. I'll be real quick. It says, I'm overcome. Please bear with me. I knew it in my heart when I read your first message. I am your birth mother. Please let's connect. My email is, and I gave him an email, and I said, do you want my phone number or me to call you? I never thought this day would come, that I always prayed you were okay and that you had a good life and that someday this day would come. I'm repeating myself. I am so grateful your birthday is etched in my heart. And then 
this man who had told me, you know, that he was so keeping it together, says, I'm also overcome. I do have a wonderful life. After getting the results last night, my wife and I found you on Facebook. You appear to have a wonderful life as well. I live in Baton Rouge. I'm happily married. I have three healthy and happy children. I grew up in Alexandria. I'm rambling. I didn't expect to. I didn't expect to be this emotional. I would like to connect. And that's when the emails take off. And it was a miracle. It was wonderful. Well, I'm crying too. You can't see that because we're not in the same room. <laughs> and I know you're a mother and I read your books. And I know any anybody who's ever ever had a child even if they knew they couldn't keep them and even if they chose not to keep them themselves there's just such a there's such a tie there it's like you can't ever your heart will never forget that person that child never and here he was in the flesh and blood writing to me and he had found me and it wasn't driving up to my parents house in a red car it was through the internet and it was through DNA, which in 1967, none of us would have ever dreamed could even be possible. It was miraculous. And I'm not kidding you. I cried for, and they were happy tears, of course, for a good solid three months. <laughs> I mean, I, could, I couldn't get through a day without just breaking down. All those years of holding in that secret just started unraveling. It was insane. And it was beautiful. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents she's got all of these maseratis and bentleys all in the driveway is it like a mansion yes it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry 
She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Jamie, whose name given to him by his adoptive parents is Ray, and Laura make a plan to speak by phone that evening after he's put his children to bed. At seven on the dot, he calls Laura. He said, I don't know why or how, but I know your voice. And his voice is different than my other sons. My other sons don't have a deeper voice. Uh, he, of course, he has a southern accent, too, which my other sons don't. His voice, I, I knew it. I would have known it anywhere. It resonated with me. Like, I can't even explain. And he, he laughed and said, you're just saying that because I'm saying, we both were laughing. We were laughing, we were crying, and we talked for four hours. It was great. Speaking of Laura's other sons, a kind of amazing thing had happened, which is that in the couple of years leading up to Jamie finding Laura online, Laura had begun to loosen her hold on her secrets. She revealed the truth about having given up a child for adoption one day while she and Jean were meeting with their attorney to discuss their wills. Shortly thereafter, she told two out of three of her sons, the ones who lived nearby. She didn't want to risk the chance that one day they might find out 
after she was gone. She also blurted out the story to one of her best friends as they were taking a long walk in San Diego. It reminds me of a favorite quote from the Scottish explorer W.H. Murray. When you are committed, the universe moves too. Now she tells all three sons about Jamie, that they're in touch. Each of them has a slightly different reaction, though ultimately all are supportive. Laura begins to tell her inner circle of friends, and with each telling, there's a burst of energy and joy. A celebration, a liberation, an unburdening of a secret shame carried for a lifetime. And once she shares her secret, the floodgates of memory start opening up. I started waking up in the middle of the night, and I would remember the names of the girls. I would remember sitting outside with my book or my magazine, I would remember sitting in the dining room eating with them and all the, you know, things we did. We were allowed to walk around the neighborhood. Um, We were allowed to, my parents came over a few times and took me for the afternoon. And things like that began to like flood my memory. I could see, I had always imagined him the way I would see him in my memory when I would think about him, he was always a baby, of course. And all of a sudden I could remember holding him. I could remember the weight of his body, um, his little body in my arms. And that's something I feel so happy when I tell this story because I want people to know that it's okay. It's okay that we remember these things. If anything, it's, it's the best thing in the world for us to be able to talk about it because then it it actually makes us understand ourselves. And and I found a forgiveness for that girl that I didn't even realize I was holding this all against her. And and it's like all of a sudden I understood myself. By finding him or him finding me, I also found myself. And then Jamie tells Laura that he wants to meet her, that he'll come the next day fly from New Orleans to San Diego. I was a nervous wreck because when I said, when are you coming? He said, tomorrow. I almost fell over. I was at lunch with a girlfriend. One of my dearest friends telling her, she's crying. I'm telling her the story and he texts me. I jumped up from the lunch and I go, you know what? I have to, I have to go home. I have to run by Trader Joe's. I have to get stuff, you know, to cook. Um, I got to clean the house. I mean, there's dog here. All over the butt. You know, I was just, and she's like, calm down. It's not coming till tomorrow. And I said, no, no, we have to leave. I text my husband. He's with fishing buddies. And I'm like, he's coming tomorrow. And he said, Oh my God. Okay, I, I'm leaving right now. I don't know what we thought we were going to do, but I, I rush home, you know, just make sure everything's ready for I'm in the guest room. I make a little sign saying, Welcome home. We wait, we wait. I don't think anything's ever been that excruciating. And it was really long driveway. I hear this Uber car coming up the driveway. I'm trying to be all calm, like I'm going to be like, Hi. And so when he walks in the door, I run out the door and run towards him. And he, of course, stops in his tracks and puts his arms around me. And it was beautiful. It was like hugging any of my sons. The way he felt, the way he just fit with me. And there was no shyness. 
it was like we had known each other forever. It was like any of my sons coming home. And it was wonderful. We came in the house, we were like glued to each other. Jean's crying, I'm crying. We sat and we talked and we never left each other's side. I never cooked anything, by the way, that whole two days he was here. Six months before the evening when her email pinged and she looked down to see the words parent-child match, Laura had written a letter to her 17-year-old self, that lost, shamed, shunned, pregnant girl who wasn't even supposed to reveal her own name. The letter was meant to be a reckoning with the past, but it has since taken on a life of its own, becoming a talisman, a wish, an agreement between Laura and the universe that somehow exists in the past, present, and future all at once. This letter is both an ending to Laura's story and a beginning. April 2016. Dear Laura, I know that you are facing one of the worst chapters in your life, and I have come back to you from the future to let you know, my dear girl, that this too shall pass. You are a survivor. Hold your head high. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You are a beautiful spirit and a gifted human being with so much to give. Know that your dreams are still possible and that your life ahead will be fulfilling beyond your wildest dreams. Although today you think you are unworthy, soon you will move away. You will move across the country and reinvent yourself. You will become the mother of three more amazing sons and two marvelous extra children through an incredible marriage to the love of your life, your knight in shiny armor, your soulmate. Eventually, you will become Grammy to six adored grandchildren. You will be the backbone that a good mother and a grandmother is for her family. So many lovely surprises will come your way, and as time softens what you are going through right now, you will one day forgive and love your parents again. You will come to terms with the way this loss of your son happened. You will understand the grief and loss that they too endured. Yes, you will always mourn your secret son. Not a day will pass that you do not. But one day, you will be able to talk about him and write his and your story. And then you will see that, yes, you are still loved. And most importantly, you will learn to love yourself again. You deserve this. I adore you. Your older self, Laura. Each night before you go to bed, my baby. I'd like to thank my guest, Laura Engel, for sharing her story with us today. You can find out more about Laura at laurallengel.com. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer. Andrew Howard and Tristan McNeil are the audio engineers. And Julie Douglas is the executive producer. Also, a special thanks to producer Derek Clements on this episode. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer and Facebook at Family Secrets Pod and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. That's Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. Each night before you go to bed, my baby.
The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 